Sea Stars Podcast, where space meets ocean. everybody and welcome to today's episode of Sea Stars Podcast. I'm super excited to have with us today Victoria Neville who is a PhD candidate and I'm super excited to have Victoria on the podcast because Victoria you've worked in so many kind of different sectors and areas of fisheries and marine biology and I think for our listeners it's kind of like a mystery as to what somebody in this field does and how you get there Uh, so welcome and I'm so excited to talk about uh, your educational and career journey. Oh wow thanks so much Leah. I'm trying to think about how long we've known each other. We've probably met almost close to 10 years ago, maybe eight. I think it's about that. Yeah, you were, um, I mean, you were an excellent TA, I have to say. <laughs> that was, you. I for the for listeners on the podcast, uh, Victoria is a PhD candidate at Memorial University, and I had the pleasure of taking a uh, marine sciences field course with Victoria a, quite a while ago now. It's, I'm so flattered that you would invite me to come and talk on your podcast today. I often feel like I'm an early career marine or fisheries biologist, but reflecting back, uh, you know, I'm I'm reaching my mid 30s now, and you know, I'm I have more than one gray hair, and uh, I've been doing this uh, basically since you know I was an undergraduate when I started uh, studying biology in 2007. So it's been it's been a bit of a journey so far. So what was something that that got you just captivated about this being your career path was there was there a moment or something that you were like oh yeah I am now addicted to this yeah I don't know um like I wouldn't call myself like a great student uh you know I had certain subjects that I did quite well and some that I struggled with struggled to pass um I even have a learning disability I'm dyslexic a lot of people don't know that for me biology was just a topic that held my interest very well and I I, I seemed to enjoy and the more field-based it got uh, you know out of the books and into the real world uh, the more sense it made uh, for me I had I spent a lot of time on the beach growing up um, and uh, you know it it was just really relevant to me but I I suppose Later in uh, my undergraduate, when we started uh, participating in field courses and and, uh, just getting out on the beach with professors and and graduate students and others and seeing what they do and connecting with fish harvesters and other people who work in ocean industries, uh, it it just clicked. It just made a lot of sense. And so since then, you've worked, you've done quite a bit of work, both yeah. in fisheries and uh, marine conservation. So kind of what after, um, or well, even during school, because you're doing uh, two really incredible things right now, but kind of uh, where did your career path start once you had finished the educational piece of it? Yeah, so it um, for me, I was tying up my undergraduate uh, degree and uh, I was... Uh, 
I believe I was a marine education interpreter. So I was doing some public education type stuff, um, giving tours to folks as they came through in the summer on the public aquarium, in a public aquarium. And we ended up, um, what we would stop at, at different tanks and tell the story of different species. And we would stop at this tank that had two or three Atlantic cod. And so for a lot of folks globally, Atlantic cod and particularly the stock northern cod is this iconic example of a fisheries collapse or decline that happened um, in the early 90s. And it's this hugely tragic event in Newfoundland and Labrador because it resulted in the layoff of everyone who was working in the fishing industry almost, almost, I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but I think it was the largest layoff in Canadian history. And so folks were really interested in this topic. And for me, I had studied biology, but as you know, Leah, because you studied with me, you know, you touch on every subject just a little bit. And so I knew a little bit about cod, uh, you know, from a biological perspective, from a fish taxonomy perspective, and a touch about the history. But so I I ended up going up into the the marine library and uh, picking out a book that was written by uh, Dr. George Rose, um, who was an incredible uh, biologist uh, who had a long history of uh, telling the story of what happened. And uh, I started reading the book uh, just so that I could better inform different tourists and folks who had interest in it. And uh, that was sort of, I guess, my first step because uh, by the end of that summer, I was walking into Dr. George Rose's office and, and asking him questions. And, and we began to work together then um, on some cod work. So uh, that was one of my, it wasn't my first project, but it was, it became my graduate project um, where I was studying the movement of cod using their ear bones. Um, but I guess what got me into it was just the need to communicate with others the story of cod and and that in wanting to describe that history i just got addicted to that story and i wanted to work on this prolific uh, species and victoria i'd love if you could talk a little bit more um, about the earbone piece because i think for our listeners i can hear kyle laughing <laughs> yeah i it's... didn't actually think we were going to get into this we hadn't decided on a topic we were just like hey like let's talk about anything but sure earbone sounds like a that's great the, that's topic. the beauty of this podcast <laughs> is that you know a lot of our listeners don't um, necessarily know a ton about this and i think this is such like a really fascinating piece of science that uh if you're kind of not in that marine sphere it would like never cross your mind That's but yeah so I would love if you could talk about that okay quick uh history on these ear bones a lot of people call them ears or uh, ear bones but they're actually ear stones they're called otoliths uh I think that just means ear stone <laughs> if it makes sense uh and uh so there are these structures within a fish's head that help them with balance uh, we actually have similar ones in our own heads, but uh, for the ones that are in fish, they're made of calcium carbonate, which is basically the same as limestone. And what's interesting about the ear bones is that they accrete or like material is laid down throughout their life. And it is done so in a way that like you can see daily bands in a fish. It's like the rings of a tree. And so when they're really young little fish, when they're larvae, you can see those daily bands. But as they grow into adults, you start to see seasonal bands and they kind of change pattern 
um, throughout the year. So you would see opaque and translucent bands in a certain pattern, which relates to um, just uh, the conditions that they're in throughout the year, which the conditions around them might change. They might stay, stay in the same space, but it might just change seasonally or they may move between habitats. And so we see these um, ear bones uh, as the primary way that fishery scientists track cohorts of fish. So when we're trying to assess populations, we will look at those ear bones to determine the fish's age. And then we can know, you know, if there's a large boom coming through, it's it's used pretty much consistently uh, throughout fishery science. And then there's a subset of individuals who use something called analytical geochemistry. And it's basically the same sorts of techniques that um, geologists would use to look at like climate change or, or things over time in limestone. Um, to look at the elements and isotopes within each of those structures, which are time bound, so now we know at this age, uh, to link that back to uh, the habitats that they may have encountered. So it's a little bit of a black box into what a fish might have done throughout their life. Can, are you able to do that while the fish is alive or do you? No, sadly. Okay, oh, so <laughs> it is it is a bit of a bummer. Uh, but here's the good news. Um, so these might be collected during like uh, fishing, like uh, like when folks are out already fishing. Uh, but usually otoliths are collected as part of like a multi-objective study. So for me, um, I worked with a team of different scientists and graduate students who, you know, somebody might be studying the liver parasites in that fish. Somebody might be studying the stomach contents of that fish. Somebody might be studying the genetics of that fish. And so um, for the projects that I was working on, um, that ear, yes, the fish were, were killed, <laughs> but the ear bone was just one of a bunch of samples that were taken. That would be called like a fully sampled fish is one that we're taking as much science as we can out of it. And so for my work, I used to work with um, historical otolith collections. So once once a fish is killed for the purposes of science, you're going to clean off that ear bone and you're going to file it away. And it's going to be in like pretty much a like a library of ear bones that then someone 10, 20 years down the road can say, OK, I really am interested in what was going on then and go back. And so I worked with historical otolith collections that were at the Marine Institute of Newfoundland, which is like a provincial um, university body and also uh, with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So you mentioned there's this huge database of of these. Um, now I I'd assume that they're like you don't just take them saying maybe one day we'll know what to do with it. Like I, I'd assume you kind of know you know there's some science we can do now. There's some science that maybe in so many years we would be able to do. Um, but is it just about the fish, or is there like you'd mentioned maybe climate change or other other things that can tie into it that you're able to learn from these? Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things that um, as the, like it's it's a, an emerging science and there's I guess the best way to describe it is that you keep these otolith collections as historical collections that someone can go back, you know, and select because um, now you have like a piece of all of those fish that can be studied at any time. So you really shouldn't get rid of an otolith once you've collected it unless um, there hasn't been other biological me measurements taken with it. In that case, you can use them to make earrings, actually. They make very beautiful earrings. But 
it's it's a rapidly emerging uh, sort of field, and it's only certain hubs of the world that really have experts in it. So there might be otolith collections everywhere, but there's you know little research hubs here and there that really know these these techniques, and um, they can be used to answer a ton of different questions. So, but it is, it's constantly sort of growing and emerging. So it's more like the technology is emerging and we're beginning to understand more. And what's also really important, I guess, is that some of the chemicals within the ear bone are uh, linked to the the water that that fish is uh, inhabited, and that's important, but some of them are more linked to the physiology of the fish. So when a fish is eating something, or if they're spawning, or they're going through something, that's going to affect the way they metabolize different things that they encounter, either through their gills while they're um, sort of breathing, or while they're swallowing water while they're eating. Um, And so there's a number of elements that you know, we we can't really rely on individually um, to tell us that much about where the fish has actually been because they're impacted by these different physiological and kinetic effects. But yeah, as we continue to develop in this field, we're starting to do more oceanographic measurements, right? So it's best to understand more about that like how the gradients of these chemicals in the ocean, what I used to call sort of the isotopic seascape or the isoscape of that ocean. So if you can better understand how elements and isotopes are distributed within the coastal shelves and the ecosystems, then and then you have the ear bone, you can kind of map and connect them using sort of advanced spatial methods. And so folks knew a little bit, uh, but um, the more they understand about the statistical methods and the more they understand about the environment and the more they understand about those analytical tools, the more accurate and precise information can be gleaned from the otoliths. Yeah. And I, I find it so cool that really kind of like you have so much experience in this really important area of science. And a lot of it kind of stemmed from just this like initial curiosity coming out of under like graduate studies where you kind of said like, geez, I want to know more about this. Yeah. Um, and I'm totally curious, like, kind of what does being a researcher in that sense look like? Like, did you get to go out on a boat? Um, like, kind of, yeah, what's what's it look like? Well, um, I have this personality that I get really obsessed with things. I think a lot of people do. Like, you ever go into those rabbit holes where you're just, like, in Wikipedia, like, jumping from, like hyperlink to hyperlink just trying to know something and then you're in the literature and this can extend for periods of time with me I think it I think a lot of people are kind of like that in this digital age where there's access to so much information um so you know I enjoyed uh the coastal ecology that I was getting from participating in a like a little mini aquarium sort of thing where I was getting to talk to people and see their enthusiasm and then I started studying cod and then I started studying not just cod but the ear bones of cod and not just the ear bones of cod but the chemicals within the ear bones of cod and not all of the chemicals just specific chemicals and I got really really specialized and I started to think okay well I I think my career is going to be I'm going to finish this I'm going to probably do a postdoctoral uh, fellowship 
you know, furthering those research questions. And then I'll probably become a research scientist at a university or um, a government. And then I'll study these until I die. And that's what my career will look like. And that's totally 100% great and what a lot of people do. But it ended up not really being my path. Um, and it's not that I got bored of that particular topic, but other opportunities sort of emerged that were, um, for example, one of my initial jobs was uh, like working with an indigenous co-management board for northern fisheries. And so I got interested in that. And then I started working for an ENGO and I just, I started to open up a bunch of different hubs and realize that that's not sort of the only pathway that you can, like that there are so many fascinating things about the ocean and about fish um, that, you know, maybe that is where I find myself somewhere, but um, at some point, but, you know, it was uh, more recently that I found myself, um, you know, um, on the radio advocating uh, for specific fisheries management measures for an ENGO and things like that. So I guess it looks like a lot of different things. And yes, I did. I did spend lots of time on boats and, and taking samples and, and doing things like that. But uh, that's not all of what it is. A lot of people with careers in marine biology spend a lot of time, you know, uh, on the radio, reading literature, attending international meetings or in a laboratory or, yeah, looks like everything, I guess. And for our listeners, and, and I love how we're kind of cut, it's, I feel like it's very poetic that it's like, we kind of always come back to that science communication mm-hmm. topic where, which is where I, I feel like so much passion for science yeah. comes from. Um, and if you're listening to this today, which is uh, Tuesday, June 8th, today is actually World Oceans Day. Uh, so I think it's very appropriate that we get to have you on the podcast today. Well, I'm honored to get to be the speaker on World Oceans Day. That's a that's amazing. I love that. One of the points to make there is that the classic idea of like how to become a marine researcher is absolutely valid and and exciting. And I have many friends who followed that path and they're very fulfilled. But it doesn't have to be that path for everyone. You know, you can get involved in the field of marine biology and you can be you can really enjoy writing papers and doing that research, or you can really enjoy getting out in the field, or you can really enjoy talking about marine biology, or you can really, like, I'm kind of an antagonistic person, and so I'm a little bit of a, um, I'm not often compliant, I've always been a bit rebellious, so, you know, working for an (laughs) ENGO uh, sated a certain part of me that wanted to stir the pot, and they were like, yeah, like, we want you to stir the pot, we want you to mix up these marine issues and challenge Um, the status quo. So there's like a bit of a space for everybody who wants to be involved in marine biology. And I didn't feel that when I was an undergraduate because I I was looking at my professors and their career paths and they were very much the only um, role models that I had of what it looked like to have that career. And now, um, now that I'm like 10 years out of that undergraduate experience, I can look to all of my cohorts of folks who were studying marine biology or biology. And most of them who anyone who wanted to has a a pretty impressive resume at this point of experience. So it's really accessible to anybody. 
keeping on the topic of working in marine sciences, I think it's more of a statement than a question, but I think it's really cool that you end up using like, you know, you have so much knowledge in marine sciences and then it just seems to me really cool to be able to use it in maybe a way that you didn't expect to when you were going through your undergraduate studies. Yeah. And I think it was really awesome that I got an opportunity to work in different spaces where I wasn't necessarily a biologist anymore because um, I didn't have any experience in policy. I still wouldn't call myself a policy expert, but I have been adjacent to many policy experts and I've, I've ended up doing a bit of, a bit of marine policy work um, through them. And uh, it really opened my mind because when I was early in my career, I was really hesitant to make definitive statements about pretty much anything because science is a world where you have to explain you know, this is your hypothesis, this is your paper, and you're explaining all of the sources of error and all of the things that it could mean, but you're very um, conservative in what your results say. If you're a good scientist, then you're like, this is what it means in this context, but it could mean something different, and here's some literature that um, doesn't correspond with that, so that the reader doesn't get a really biased perspective. But here's the problem with that, is that we have these people who are experts, relative experts, and they know, they, they have the ability to make recommendations that influence policy decisions, legislative decisions, and they tend to speak in that very reserved, almost opaque tone. And that's a tone specific for the published literature for folks who are, you know, coming from all different realms to understand this is what I mean and this is all of the caveats that come with this statement. And that can be, in my opinion, that can be a bit of a, a problem because you're just sometimes, at least when I was working in an NGO, uh, someone knows uh, when I was re representing that particular conservation stance that I'm biased. I'm representing the conservation stance here. So, I need that scientist to say with definitive action that say this practice or this um, industry may have this effect. And uh, they tend to be really um, conservative uh, in terms of those statements. And you completely, you completely understand that because their job is to be an unbiased scientist. But um, sometimes you need to know that you're the expert and you're the one everyone's looking to. So you may not have all of the answers, but you have a really, really good idea. So be clear about what your science means so that the folks who are making decisions and the general public um, really knows what you're talking about. I, I think that's a perfect point just in about general science is that I, most people when they hear uh even if, if someone um, that's not a scientist were to read a research paper, mm -hmm. they wouldn't be convinced that, that, you know, <laughs> much was actually learned from the research paper because they usually have uh, jargon such as like, oh, this is likely due to this or something. It's, it's not coming out saying this caused this, I guarantee it. Yeah. Um, so, so when you have someone like a whole bunch of scientists that say this likely led to this, which likely had a bunch of these factors, but we're not sure, but you know, there's a, a good chance. Um, it's really hard to compete that with some, someone uh, like a lobbyist who's, who's being paid to say absolutely. the opposite, uh, which exactly, you yeah. know, I'm not, uh, here specifically that to be critical of that. I understand it totally. Uh, but when, 
a researcher is answering a question about something, they they don't just do it in one long scientific paper. They often do it in like a series of like a decade of scientific papers. And you have to look at that whole literature to like really find out what they were saying sometimes. Completely, um, yeah. So the average person isn't going to do that. Um, so we have to like, this is my call out there to scientists that, you know, if you have something to say, make sure that you say it clearly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I don't think that could be said en- enough times. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. And I, I think there's a pretty big gap within getting scientists into politics as well. Um, and, and trying to get them to be the ones that are actually making the decisions out there rather than getting them to put out the research papers and then have those be interpreted however they're they're interpreted from that side but and maybe that's more of our role too you know as folks who are interested and and passionate about marine conservation you guys as leaders of this podcast is to get at those relevant questions and to make it accessible to folks because you know it becomes dangerous for scientists when they have to um when they have to be really definitive, it's not that it, it's dangerous for them, but like when they have, they cannot come across as biased. So they need to have that certain amount of measure with all of their statements. It's up to us to kind of be like, this means that. <laughs> so here's, here's an interesting question that uh, like just having conversations with a bunch of people that I, I don't necessarily know the solution to, but from the, the outside perspective, Every study has been paid for or funded by someone. Yep. So how how can you get or ensure that there isn't bias by the person who's funding the study? Oh, that's a really big question, honestly. Um, it's hard to explain that to the average person because what I would do as a scientist is I'm going to look at that journal. You know, is that journal a reputable journal um, that and there are lots of, you know, reputable uh, scientific journals out there, but there are also these predatory um, sort of scientific journals. I don't know too much about them, but they come out and they can kind of publish some garbage out there. Um, A lot of scientific journals pride themselves in, in, you know, only engaging reviewers uh, that are really balanced and, and trying to engage a um, wide breadth of reviewers. So I'm still quite confident that the peer review process weeds out a lot of bias because you can take a look at the, you know, usually uh, like depending, you know, that a study might be funded by an industry in part or an environmental group in part or government. Um, and that could um, influence the questions that they ask, but, you know, it's not going to influence the answers to those questions so long as the scientists are employing uh, proper methods and that is um, should be taken care of through the peer review process. What worries me sometimes is what happens at the next phase when uh, snippets from that paper you know sort of go viral sometimes without the actual author uh, being engaged in that uh, perspective and so uh, that's where things can kind of spin out of control um so i don't really have an answer to that question um except for that uh i guess we have to look at look to leaders in marine conservation uh, to guide us a little bit 
I, I know that it's a tough one and I'm sorry to put you on the spot with it. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's one where, and I, you definitely elaborated to that, you know, the, the peer review process is really what, what um, like justifies the result for it. And it like anyone can publish a paper stating anything for the most part, like you said, whether it's in a reputable journal or not, you can pretty much publish anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, if it makes it through, like, you know what, these methods make sense, the process makes sense, the result, yes, that I could see how that would would go. And maybe it's been duplicated in these ways, or, or the paper has been um, obviously stated how you could duplicate um, mm-hmm. the testing to yeah. test the results. And that's, yeah, that's really how it is. But um, yeah, no, no, I mean, that's a that's a good point. And I, you know, um, I don't see a lot of these sort of poorly done papers actually, you know, being cited because usually uh, the scientific community sort of knows the difference. Um, And I don't know if it's a huge issue in in marine conservation. It's not something that I've really encountered too, too much. It's usually more of an issue in like medical journals and things like that, where you get really, you find these really bogus findings uh, published in an obscure, strange journal. But I think it does happen in in all fields. But uh, I think just to get at the question of bias more generally, I think I would have to quote um, someone else who I think is a C-star, Dr. Brett Favaro. I don't know if you know Dr. Brett Favaro, but um, I was talking to him about bias at a conference once, and he made the point that pretty much we all are biased um, from where we're standing. Um, and that, I think, includes researchers. Um, but we just have to just acknowledge that bias when we come into a conversation. So if there's a marine issue, and there's conservationists are saying one thing, the science is saying something, and, you know, a community or an industry is saying something else, uh, you know, they may be versions of the truth with specific bias. In it. And it's up to us as individuals to take our values into account and to decide where we land on that particular issue, right? I think that's so powerful in considering that, like what we were talking about, it's just there's so much information online these days. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's kind of up to us as individuals to really, you know, when we read something, have a think about like, and and this is something that for our listeners, especially in, uh, I mean, in all degrees, but in science, you know, it kind of gets drilled into you to think about like, who is publishing this? Mm -hmm. Like, do they have a specific reason they would want to do this? And Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily that all outcomes are like nefarious or that there's bad intention behind it, but it's so important for us to always kind of think about like, what are we reading? Mm -hmm. Is there another side to this? And then, you know, we get to make our decisions about how we feel about something. Um, But yeah, that is... It, it is such an interesting thought. And I think it's something that really gets missed in kind of this like internet culture. Currently, people just kind of lean to one side or the other so quickly without really taking that time to, to really think about the issue. Yeah, well, do you know what this is just kind of reminding me of, and I didn't watch it, but the recent documentary that came out, Sea Spiracy. I haven't watched it yet, but uh, Kyle and I have been both, actually, it's funny, Kyle asked me about it when it first came out, and uh, I've kind of avoided reading a lot about it, Um, but yeah, I'm so curious to hear your thoughts, because I know there's quite a bit of buzz about it. Well, I I think this is personal, but, you know, uh, I felt I wasn't in the right headspace to watch Seaspiracy when it came out, because I can get very... um, 
there's there's a certain amount of burnout sometimes when you're working with things that are in decline and conservation issues and whales in particular and the noise that they're experiencing and the entanglements that they're experiencing and declines of food and you know I was just not in the right headspace where I wanted to watch Seaspiracy because I knew I was going to feel things and I already felt things all the time so it wasn't like I was your average person who's just like walking around not thinking about the ocean all the time I am so I knew it would impact my ability to sleep and <laughs> things like that but so I did see some of the controversy that came out. And uh, so maybe one day I will watch it. But a lot of folks were quite critical about uh, some aspects of Seaspiracy. Like, was that the whole truth? Was that part of the truth? Was the recommendations that came from that uh, film sound? And, you know, um, I read some of them. Uh, but I think both are sort of true. Like scientists are going to respond to some of the generalizations that are, were made in that movie and be like, that's not the whole truth. But to them, the whole truth is very nuanced. And um, there are certain parts and pieces, but that documentary isn't a scientific paper. It's trying to tell a story and it's trying to make an impact and it's trying to reach a broad audience. And like, before you're too critical, think about, is your work doing that? it's it's probably not so um i think it's important to be critical and be media literate when you take something like that into account but i still think it's really important that people do that type of work doesn't mean that it doesn't it's not going to receive a certain amount of criticism because when you put something out there you have to be ready to receive um the things that are not correct about it maybe but i still think it was important because it got a lot of people talking about issues which were largely true Maybe there was a few things in there that um, were taken a little bit farther out of context for impact. Uh, but I think that a lot of the criticisms of uh, the fishing industry in particular, you know, there's there's some truths there that the average person just isn't thinking about. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I haven't seen it uh, with Leah. I'm waiting until Leah watches it to then uh, yeah. to then see. Um, but uh, that that's a really good point and it's it it's sometimes difficult um i mean i'm i feel the same way anytime there's a space documentary yeah i i just put myself in the mindset okay let's see if they're like how real they're trying to be with this or if they're trying to do the same thing so i i watch space documentaries with the same lens uh, for sure but with um with a lot of documentaries you know they don't go through that peer review process yeah no. right and so i i think as long as most people watch it knowing you know what this is one person or a select few's people uh their, their yeah their view then it it's you know all fine and dandy but if if it comes out trying to say this is the consensus or this is like proven or anything like that then that's that's where there's more of a gray area for for what the takeaway from it is yeah it kind of reminds me of like people who care will ask me like victoria should i eat seafood or should I not eat seafood? And it becomes like, it's a very personal question. It, it actually is not something that I can answer for you because I have my own values that I'm bringing into play. Like what is important to you when you make a decision about seafood? Um, is it the like green impact, you know, of the sustainability? Um, is it animal rights or is it, um, like local economies or, you know, like, are you comfortable eating seafood if it's sustainable? 
from a socio-ecological and uh, like economic perspective? Um, or are there broader questions to answer? So I think, yeah, like the, the question of should you eat seafood and what seafood should you eat is going to vary a lot depending on where you're situated in the world. Um, are you an Inuit person who's living um, and catching that fish and it's part of your, your food culture? Or are you in Toronto enjoying, you know, uh, a, a roll covered in a um, an egg that you don't know where that roe-based fishery came from? There's like, there's a lot of different questions there. That would, uh, I feel like that would also be really good on you. You've, you've received the right training to know, okay, do you want my biased opinion <laughs> or do you want me to, to take a look at this for what's best for you? Um, and I, I think that the scientific process really allows people to realize if they're putting on that lens or not of I'm applying my bias. Okay. This is what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what, let's, let's see what's actually best for you in your, in your scenario. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. People are very concerned about what they're eating and where it's coming from. And I think that's really awesome in both from a seafood and a other sustainability lenses. But as we were talking about earlier, that it is hard as a marine scientist at times because there is kind of so much like doom and gloom and mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there that like want to do things for the uh, for the marine environment. And it really has me, what you said earlier, thinking about how like really there is like so much out there that you can do. Yeah. And I, I think it's really hard for us in our daily lives to do it all. Yeah. But I think it's important to kind of find that thing that speaks to you, like yeah. whether that's reducing your plastic consumption or maybe it is making a choice to really investigate the seafood you're eating yep. and decide whether you eat sustainably or there's literally so many things you can do and yeah I really love where the that the points that you touched on that this just there's so much that you kind of can do and we might not all individually have the capacity to do everything but it's like what speaks to you in terms of how do you how are you involved with the marine environment even if you're not close to the ocean I mean we're um, in different provinces in Canada right now but we share the same ocean Mm -hmm. Uh, but of course there's lots of people who don't see the ocean every day too. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So we've come around, we've talked about, you know, how to have a career or what my career looks like in marine conservation. But in the name of Oceans Day, we've also talked about, you know, how other people uh, can engage with the topic of marine conservation and what they can do. And, you know, documentaries like Seaspiracy or things like that, they may have a couple of recommendations and they may be spiritually or culturally relevant to you. And you may want to take those recommendations. But I think what we can all agree on is that since it's coming out on Ocean's Day, that it's important for you to do something that makes sense based on your sense of place, based on your relationship with the ocean. Um, And so you know, it could be so many different things. It could be attending a seminar uh, and learning more about a topic. Um, because the more you know, the better you can inform other people. And it could be attending a beach cleanup or another type of volunteer voluntary activity. It could be your climate action, whether you're choosing to participate in waste reduction, um, using less single-use plastics, composting, um, thinking about the sourcing of different materials that you have, whether it's your car or your plastics, trying to focus on like a circular economy and just use less 
all of these things are are very helpful to the ocean and those they're just a couple there are so many different ways so i think um depending on where you're listening um in the name of world oceans day you should take a look at what events are available to you whether it's online or it can be uh, completed through social distancing and just use this as an opportunity to like connect uh, with what you can do for the ocean and, and reflect on that for the next year and see how you can change your activities. What are the things you can do um, rather than telling all of your friends, I did this one thing and this is the only thing you should do. Talk about it, but everybody's going to have something different. This has just been the perfect podcast for World Oceans Day. And I really love how this conversation has evolved. And I, I think it's so uh, important for our listeners to hear about like what you know, a path in marine sciences can sound like, mm-hmm. because I think that we all, and even as for both of us starting out in marine sciences, fall into this kind of like traditional, like, here's how you go about it. Like you go to university and you become a professor. But like, I think that if, if you can take away anything from this conversation is just that a career in marine sciences is, uh, it's so large and varied. And I think that's what makes it so um, incredible and impactful. And I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today and to talk about your path and uh, and yeah and, and everything you've done and give everybody some really I think impactful suggestions um, of of kind of how you can be a part of the ocean and, and impart some change so thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much it was great meeting you Kyle and always a pleasure to talk to you Leah happy world oceans day Thank you for listening to the Sea Stars podcast. If you have any questions, send them to us on email, Instagram, or Twitter. And thank you to our producer, Steph. Our music is by Jesse Rusk, and our art is by Niamh McMaster.